Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, April 8th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So, uh, Joe Biden today is set to unveil a series of executive orders on gun control. Uh, I am fascinated by one thing I wanted to mention, which is that I was listening to NPR's morning edition this morning, uh, which led with this story, uh, Biden's actions against two tools of gun violence, let's say, which we can get to. But it said he's planning to issue these executive actions and name a director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Now, uh, ATF is a minor agency. Uh, I think it, it was a, a long time in the Treasury Department because it's like where they got moonshiners and bootleggers, and so that's why it's alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Um, I think it was moved to Homeland Security when they restructured the government in 2002. I think this is the first time that the director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms nomination or the name of the director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms has ever been mentioned anywhere. And it's all part of the breathlessness with which the media is treating every action by the Biden administration, including the naming of the director of of a relatively obscure agency with... Rather limited federal powers, by the way, uh, but it just goes to show how um, how the a publicity machine uh, that uh, can't believe its good fortune in being over and done with the Trump administration continues to proffer a narrative that treats the Biden administration as though uh, its every action has some kind of a magical golden glow behind it, including the naming of the director of an agency that 90% of Americans have never even heard of. So, uh, Well, I didn't know anything about this until this morning, but apparently it's it's not like it's not a big deal. So in 2006, this position was made confirmable. The Senate had to confirm it. And at no point was a director ever confirmed until 2013, when Barack Obama's uh, director was confirmed, and it was a big deal then. I don't know if there's been another confirmation. It wasn't a big deal. It wasn't a big deal in <laughs> no. 2013. It's, it's, like, it's it difficult wasn't to confirm a, big deal. a permanent director of this agency. Okay, but honestly, the only Fine. thing that American, cares is what Americans <laughs> Americans know of the ATF mainly through television and movies. Is my right. like right? Like there's there's always like an ATF agent on a show like Weeds or something, and and uh, it. it I will note, by the way, that there's also a lot of corporate synergy type stuff going on with the Biden administration. I think in his um, executive order about guns, he name checks his own infrastructure plan, which is kind of like synergy. You know, there's a lot there's a lot of that going on, too, which is unusual. I think I just want to tell you my one quick anecdote about the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms in 1989. uh, I briefly worked as one of the people helping to set up the Office of National Drug Control Policy under uh, uh, Bill Bennett. So I was a special assistant to Bill Bennett. And one of the things that I did was there were, I don't know, dozens of agencies involved in the drug war, and he was supposed to coordinate them. It never happened. You can't coordinate them. The whole thing was a ridiculous thing. Guess who invented the drug czar's position? Future President Joe Biden. Genius move. Really effective. Anyway, 
So uh, I set up these meetings at various uh, agencies, Treasury, the, the Commerce, the, all these, like, you know, the Coast Guard had a role, the Merchant Marine had a role, the Pentagon had a role, you know, like f- dozens of agencies. So we sit down with some guy at, uh, at at Treasury. Of course, they all hated the very existence of the drug czar's office uh, since it was going to try to Bigfoot them or do stuff like that. So these were always, these meetings were were pretty hostile. And so this guy who was like, I don't know, number three at Treasury or number four at Treasury or something like that says, looking at us, you know, at some point he said something and I don't know, somebody, Bill or something said, can I just ask? And he said, will you let me finish? This is after like five minutes. So it was really a nice meeting. So finally he says, and now we turn, he had this thick New York accent, and now we turn to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Now, let me tell you, this is a honey of a little agency. <laughs> it's a honey of a little agency. Um, and so, my, yeah, exist in existence mostly to, like, bust up stills for moonshiners in the 30s. But has anyway, so I just wanted to say that, like, the the credulousness and the breathlessness with which any announcement by the Biden administration on a change or in policy can be treated as the lead news story on one of the most important news networks uh, in America was pretty startling. Okay, move on from there. Okay, so uh, Joe Biden's going to announce two things, uh, as I understand. One is a red light laws, uh, which. Um, give permission to somebody or other to take guns, to confiscate guns from a household in which there is a person who is acting erratically or, you know, is a danger to himself or others. Sounds pretty unenforceable to me, but fine. Great. You know, I mean, this is the sort of thing that comes up when you say, how is it that um, Nicholas Cruz, you know, the Parkland shooter, how was he able to amass all these guns and couldn't somebody go in and take them since people kept saying this kid is crazy and he's going to kill people. So it, it, it speaks to an idea in people's heads. Like why, why can't you intervene before it happens? Right. And then the other is the ghost gun. So the ghost gun is a gun kit. You can order online apparently and make your own gun somehow. And it doesn't come with a, Social security now. It's social security number. <laughs> it also doesn't have a social security number or a Can't vaccine pa- or a vaccine passport. Right. <laughs> uh, so they want to do something about regulating the ghost gun. Now, I, I, all I want to say about this is fine. Do this. They won the election. They're gun controllers. Republicans are more like gun freedom advocates. You know, they want to come up with stuff. Whatever. Um, I do notice that for the last 30 years, pretty much since like nine, almost 30 years, uh, gun controllers are always coming up with a crisis or a problem you never heard of before that they then turn into a thing that everybody starts talking about and then it becomes like a cultural thing and then they use it in campaign ads and speeches and it was not a thing before they sort of turned it into a thing. So that was, of course, the the famous 
terrible gun show loophole. Because after they passed gun control in 93 or 94, it then turned out that nobody in the nobody in their own legislation, Democratic legislation, they forgot or did something where it was like there was no check or something or other on, on gun sold at gun shows. So they then called this the gun show loophole, a loophole they created by not closing it in their own legislation in 93 or early 94 or something like that. And then they walked around. Bill Clinton spent 1996 going around to women's groups saying, we must close the tragic gun show loophole. So this term had never existed before. And then after the Mandalay Bay shooting uh, in 2017, what did we hear from Trump and everybody else? It's a terrible thing. Bump stocks. We must deal with the bump stock crisis. It's got this Dr. Strangelove quality to it. You know, the we must close the mineshaft gap. You know, some this term just sort of emerges out of nowhere. And we have two new ones, is what I'm saying. Red light law. Red flag. Ghost, red flag. Red, yeah. red flag. Excuse me. Red light law would be something else entirely. <laughs> and <clears throat> the ghost gun crisis. Ghost guns. <laughs> two things on this. I don't ghost actually guns. know what the statute is, um, but the bump stocks, the attempt to, to ban bump stocks ended up um, exceeding the remit of the presidency, um, according to the courts. I don't think that's the case here with 3d printed home printed weapons that have a no serial numbers i don't i don't know whether or not that 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 expands what uh, the you know the remit of the presidency and and probably it's not a bad idea frankly although the only time i've ever heard about these weapons being you know in the news is not when they're used in a crime per se though i'm sure that's probably happened but when um states have buybacks for example that people you know assemble for three and a half dollars a gun go to a buyback, demonstrate that it works, and get 25 bucks out of the deal. That's the only time I've ever heard about a ghost By gun. By the way, I, they, they, they actually, here in D.C., I follow crime pretty closely here in D.C., and they do, you know, you'll see occasionally as you read the reports that that it's not infrequent that they recover what they call a ghost gun in the commission of, it's almost always when they've also uh, confiscated other illegal guns um, among that, that criminals and other people who shouldn't have guns have. I will say for the ghost gun, if you're a law-abiding uh, firearms owner, you should not fear any regulation of ghost guns because they're, it's very simple to just merge them into the existing system for for gun licensing and gun approval, which is that if it's 80% complete, you have to apply for a license to have one. So if you want to make your own gun, great, but then at some point it does need to be registered. I think the fear, and it's a legitimate fear given the anti-gun left, is that this is a foot in the door, right? This is the beginning of an effort to start uh, making a more confiscatory approach to gun ownership in this country. And that's a legitimate concern that should be pushed back against. But I would know, I mean, regulating ghost guns, of course, we should we should do that. That's or At least you know, having a trackable serial number. But right. with regard to the red flag laws, I don't have any idea how that's supposed to work on the federal level. On the state level, and it varies from state to state, but generally... Um, licensed professionals, medical health professionals, or officers of the court or law enforcement professionals can, you can seek this through the courts. And then that temporary order is issued by a judge and it's temporary. It's like a temporary restraining order. It has to be reaffirmed in a couple of weeks. Um, It's not, you can't just have your constitutional right taken away by edict a judge has to sign off on this, and that's a state-level issue. Uh, there's no federal courts don't adjudicate this issue. So how, how does this work? How okay, this well, work? here's how it works. It's nonsense. 
<laughs> and so is the ghost gun thing nonsense. Because if the idea is we need to do something to make sure that people who buy these kits get a serial number so that when the gun is used and dropped at the scene, we can trace it back to the person who bought it as a serial or so, whatever. It's over-promise it's, and under-deliver in this case then. Right, right. But here's what's important about both of these things. So Biden is properly serving his political constituency's interest by making moves on gun control matters. He is also helping to revive, by doing so, the Republican conservative paranoia about Democrats moving on guns. And there is an opportunity, there is a there is a political act that he is performing, and there is a question about the opportunity cost of what it is he is doing for his own and his party's own political future. Because you don't want to go into 2022 with the 36% of Americans who have guns in the home or the 36% of households who have guns in the home believing that the administration in office it wants to come and take their guns. Time and again in congressional elections, the ability to stir gun owners, gun owners to go to the polls in very large numbers and often low turnout midterm elections has been proven to be a decisive factor in Republican recoveries from difficulties that they have at the ballot box in presidential elections. So interestingly enough, you have Biden doing what he needs to do to say, I'm moving on this. And it may be self-defeating because it will mean more to the people who are worried about what it means than it will to the people who want gun control generally, who probably who want it in an evanescent fashion, who want it. They want there to be fewer guns. They want there to be fewer. They want people guns to go away. Um, but then the, but then you take these sort of met, which don't even take guns away, really. And then you get people going, uh-oh, you know, and here come the emails. Here comes the mass emails and the NRA, which has been like rocked on its heels by various scandals and lawsuits and everything, suddenly getting renewed lease on life by having an antagonist. So that's – so is this a good <clears> – is <throat> Biden making a smart move or a dumb move? I ask you. Well, I don't, once again, I, I feel like I'm not sure. I, I don't understand what it is he thinks he's doing politically. You know what I mean? Um, I this 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 question comes up. It's it's kind of like uh, um, the the when we were discussing the the Iran deal, as we'll we'll get back into later in this show. Um, I don't know who he thinks he's um, uh, servicing with this in in the sense that like you know who's he who's he getting on board that isn't on board. And at what cost? So no, no, I don't think it's a good move politically at all. It's also well, it, it also no. somewhat contradicts what he said just a few weeks earlier. You know, after the last uh, mass shooting, he kind of uh, there was a, again, as there always is, a demand for do something, do something, do something, and he was like, "Oh, we got to work on infrastructure. We got to work on it." He he kind of swatted that away 
And so maybe this is the the sort of delayed response to the demands that were made then as they are made after any time there's a, well, I should say anytime there's a mass shooting with the right demographics, um, because there are mass shootings all the time in many cities across this country, but those never go, uh, there's, there's not a lot of hand-wringing and pearl-clutching by Democrats about those. Well, we know who this is, whom this is intended to serve. I mean, it's, we know this because it is axiomatic in certain circles that this is the case. This is for moms. This is for suburban moms. They don't like guns. They don't like gun violence. They don't like the culture of guns. They don't like guns, blah, 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 blah. Right, but, but I mean, Democrats have nothing to worry about, you know, in terms of those people switching to, to the GOP anyway. Oh, I don't yeah. think that's true. I don't yeah. think that's true at all. Suburban women, suburban white women. Yeah, no, they're, a, they're a swing demo. Especially if crime starts to increase, gun ownership starts to look a little more appealing to people when they live in a suburb that didn't used to have violent crime and suddenly starts to see it. All right, but then we're saying that this is then that that would make them not the people that that right. Biden is trying to serve. Yeah. Well, okay. So what I'm saying is that you have the activists, and what the activists say to move the political debate in their direction is there is a silent majority that hates guns there or there is a silent plurality that hates guns but is feels defeated or whatever and you know these things happen and you want to you know don't think this is a sleeping giant now the sleeping giant of gun control has been a sleeping giant for 30 years and it has been tested politically over time, I mean, I mentioned this before, but, you know, in 2000, Liddy Dole ran for president in the Republican Party on a gun control platform as a real world test of whether or not this phenomenon of the suburban Republican moderate woman who doesn't like guns could be appealed to and could turn into a kind of recognizable constituency that could create a fire that would help propel her forward and it didn't work. Like there was actually, it's like, as I said, it's like a real world marketing test. Can you sell this product, Republican gun control or non-liberal, non-leftist gun control? Now this was 20 years ago. Things changed. There have been a lot more mass shootings and all of that. But, uh, you know, it's not as though the numbers of, of households in which guns exist have declined as far as I can tell. I think they've gone up modestly in that time. And therefore you have a constituency that now you don't have, they're not ideological. Most of them are not, they're not like, oh my God, they're coming for my guns. Mm -hmm. The idea that they're coming for your guns is is a species of idea in a relatively small number of people. But if you have five or six issues to talk about in a midterm election, and you are somebody who has guns in the house, and you don't like tax policy, you don't like wokeness, and you don't like this, but you're maybe you're willing to stay home or you don't really care that much, and you add guns to it, you know, that's where you could tip the scale into, yeah, I'm going to go to the poll and vote for the Republican over the Democrat in my swing district because I don't, you know, these guys are going too far, and they're going too far in every in every direction. There's no way of testing this. I will say again that this is an important issue for Democrats. It is a key, you know, it's an important media issue. And he got himself good coverage. He's going to get himself good coverage today when he makes the announcement. He's going to get all of that. And, you know, that 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 continues to sort of be 
uh, a key element of his strategy, which is look how much good press I'm getting. Look, see, my poll numbers are over 50%. That proves I have bipartisan support. That's the, the game now is that he has bipartisan support because polls say Republicans like some things that he's doing, supposedly. This is the first definite, this is the first time that we've defined bipartisan support as being numbers in polls that systematically undercount Republicans. <laughs> so you're supposed to use the numbers in polls that systematically undercount Republicans to prove that you have bipartisan appeal. So whatever. It's an interesting. No, every, every report, I've, I've been, this is something that frustrates me too, that every reporter who repeats this convention that Ron Klain made up where we now define bipartisan, which used to mean votes in Congress, to, to mean what it used to mean, which is cross-partisan, cross-partisan appeal, cross-partisan support, which used to refer to polls. And we've mixed up those definitions because the Biden administration just wants to say everything they do is bipartisan. And every reporter has become complicit in this redefinition of this word because, as you know, and as we say, they're very much on board with the project. Well, you know, it's interesting because Gallup came out this week with a poll that said that the Democratic people self-identify as Democrats over Republicans is at its highest level in a decade. Uh, I think it's a it's 10 point margin now uh, or leaners, Democrats and Democrat leaders versus Republicans and Republican leaders. I think it's 49 to 39. Well, here's what's interesting. Of course it is. Like, I mean, uh, it's three months after an election, uh, an election in which the in which the Democrat won by, you know, four and a half percent. And people are feeling optimistic. And generally speaking, people like the winner. People overestimate the amount that they voted for the winner. You'll find if Biden does well this year and people like him at the end of this year and you did a poll, whether you voted for him in 2020, his number will be higher than 51%. It'll be 55 or 56%. That's a classic polling thing where people say they voted for the guy who's in good shape. It's a it's a weird it's a problem with self-reporting, uh, you know, because it's checkable against, against reality. Um, so the point is, of course, Democrats are, are, are at high water. They should be at high water. Like, they passed a popular... Uh, coronavirus package that people seem to like and uh, and the you know people are getting shots and the economy is moving and so yeah it's fine though well, that it's, number it's however that, that number so. is that number is evanescent in the extreme just watch it watch it over 40 years the self-identified republican or republican leaner or democratic democratic leader is a number that bounces all over the place at any given snapshot moment. These are not sworn fealties, memberships that you that you make and then you never move off. It no, is, I'm but the, it, yeah, but it's just it's simply just not true to say that the Democratic Party is in good odor and that's why they're popular. The Republican Party is in bad odor, and they're they're shedding membership as a result of their own actions. Now, the question is whether or not the party is in as much bad odor as it was in two thousand nine post-financial collapse, post-mid-Iraq frustrations with the electorate, and whether or not they can recover in the same way that the Republican Party did in 2010. And the Republican Party is not the same party in 20, as it was in 2010, where you had plenty of O'Donnells and Sharon Angles and weirdos in the conference who you know, dominated the press. But it was a single-minded, very effective opposition that did nothing but talk about what the Obama administration was doing to you and why it was terrible. 
And we don't have that kind of opposition today. Well, it's early. The Tea Party barely existed by this point in 2009. So, you know, I mean, the... the, the Paul the, Ryan did. The blowback did. Joe, yeah, Paul, Joe, yes. John Boehner did. And the right. Tea Party reflected what they were saying. They were dismissed. The people who were saying, oh, you know, we're spending too much money here or, uh, you know, half a dozen other reasons. Or they're, they're coming after your health care, that sort of thing. And they pounded the table every day was said. And I remember this very explicitly was said to be not what voters cared about. Voters didn't care about that sort of thing anymore. And the Tea Party reflected their rhetoric in a mirror image, said exactly what the House minority was saying. And that's just that just doesn't exist anymore. Now it's 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 all culture. It's culture wars up and down. And that appeals to a, to a, the narrow base of the Republican Party, but does it build the base? And I'm not okay. so sure. Okay, so let's let let me let me then proffer a test case for you. What is going on in Georgia right now is very very interesting. It seems to me. Okay, because uh, Rob Manfred, the commissioner of Major League Baseball, announces apparently, according to Major League Baseball, after a phone call with Stacey Abrams, that he's going to move the All Star Game out of. Georgia. At which point Stacey Abrams starts going, no, 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 no. I did not know. No. You know, like proof rock. That is not what I meant at all. That is not it at all. Of course she said it. There's no way he didn't, he did it without her saying it, but she's saying she didn't say it. Why? Because Georgia is the purplest state in the country, by which I mean, right, Biden won and the two uh, Democratic Senator senatorial runoffs won the Senate races. Biden won by what? 14,000 votes, I believe. And we know that the two Senate races were won because of Trump's psychotic attack on voting that depressed enough Republican voters that they didn't come out to the polls and therefore uh, Warnock and Ossoff won those runoffs. This is not a Democratic state. And uh, and what just happened is that the woke cause that has overtaken the Democratic Party and this notion that this piece of legislation that Democrats oppose is so egregious and horrible that a boycott supported by the president of the United States needs to be imposed on the state. Every person in Georgia, now it's April. So April of 2021, uh, you know, elections are in November of 2022. This could all fade. But this is overreach. This is, they are not in a power position in Georgia to be throwing out the all-star game because they want to walk around saying that, you know, Jim Crow is back in Georgia. And then Major League Baseball goes, oh, my God, we can't be associated with Jim Crow for two weeks around the All-Star game. There's going to be no stories except who's going to boycott the game, what players are going to play. Are they going to kneel? Are they going to start attacking? Oh, it's going to be all terrible. Let's get the hell out of here. But it okay. the, and, and that test case actually is just the beginning, right? Because now you have people might not realize just how much uh, Hollywood and the film industry does a lot of its work in Georgia. There are a lot of 
breaks. There are a lot of incentives to bring the film industry. There are many, many films are made in Georgia now. When you see New York on a screen, it's often Georgia. Um, and that is a huge and lucrative uh, business that Georgia wants to keep in its state. So the question then becomes, you know, if all the woke folks in Hollywood have to feel the pressure to also boycott, uh, they're going to they're gonna have to start making a choice. It forced Stacey Abrams single-handedly forced the hand of a lot of the woke left uh, cultural creators here with this with this uh, maneuver. And I'm not surprised at all that she instantly backpedaled. And I don't believe for a second, I'm with you, John, I think she's lying uh, through her teeth when she claimed she didn't say that. So um, it's a huge bungle, but it, I don't think it ends with the MLB thing. I think it continues. Um, and, and that's actually like, as you say, that's good for Republicans in the state. Well, there was this fantastic letter that Marco Rubio wrote to Rob Manfred or, you know, saying, um, oh, Rob Manfred, I, I gather that you are a member of the Augusta Golf Club where the Masters is played. Are you going to resign? Are you going to resign from the Augusta Golf Club because it's in Georgia? Who's going to stop drinking Coca-Cola? Can Tyler Perry, the single most important force in African-American cinema, who has a studio in Atlanta that employs hundreds of people. How can he continue working there when Jim Crow is alive and well in Georgia? Like there is no, this is the rubber meets the road here. You don't get to play one symbolic game by, you know, like seizing on this opportunity to get a little fun political kick uh, about the all-star game being in Georgia and then and then drop it, which by the way happened with the movie industry there uh, there was a there was a call to boycott Georgia after Stacey Abrams' election was stolen from her by 50 squillion votes and then they ran the numbers stolen. <laughs> but that's right. that's the difference here in this situation is the the progressive left gets itself worked up all the time with these narratives about how du jour racial segregation is upon us again and a, a cursory review of their grievances reveals that it's a, a little ridiculous but joe biden played the, the the cooling element here for for much of the primary and then the general election he was the guy who who went what ran for the nomination won the nomination won the presidency by ignoring progressive twitter and he abandoned that strategy in this case, and it has become a singular debacle, probably the biggest for his presidency so far. Um, have, will they learn a lesson from that? Will they realize that they've gone too far? Or is this just President Klain, who is who himself is a very online person these days, um, continue to dictate the terms of what Joe Biden reacts to and when he reacts to it? Because he wouldn't have done this normally. Right. Well, I mean, I think they thought that they had an opportunity here and they didn't they didn't understand. This is what I think. I mean, it's not just online. Forget just online, because you're living in an atmosphere of triumphal of democratic triumphalism, uh, which is characterizing the administration's actions rather than caution, prudence, you know, efforts to build coalitions, all of that. They're very triumphalist. They are very, they are quite revolutionary. And they may, it may not have occurred to them to game out what it would mean for the president to keep hitting that, uh, the Georgia laws are Jim Crow, uh, including that Georgians themselves might take offense at the idea after, you know, 50 years of, you know, uh, after, uh, 
less dramatics, you know, that, that somehow nothing has changed. Like, you know, people like their state that they live in and they don't like it being insulted and they don't like the idea that you pe- people trash it. And if the president of the United States is going to be trashing it, maybe that's not the best idea. But he may not have known that if what he's doing is talking to Stacey Abrams, who has her own game to play and who also didn't game this out. And I don't think it's because she's online. I think it's because they live in a world in which no people don't have truck with each other anymore. You know, she doesn't like have a glad-handing Republican friend who's like, eh, Stacey and I had gone a little far there. You might want to pull back, you know, sort of like who, what Sam Irvin was for the Democrats in the 1970s or Fritz Hollings or people like that, Democratic senators from the South who would say things like, you guys are pushing our coalition in directions you may not want to go. So you might want to, li- you may not like us, you may not, but, but you better listen to us, right? And there are so few voices like that. There's just there's very little there except for Mansion, right? And the very online people hate Mansion. Oh boy, are they hating Mansion? Like particularly now that he's again said he's not going to futz with the filibuster. Let me just uh, stop for a minute and talk to you guys about ExpressVPN. Um, we're talking about very online things. If you're online, people know you're online, and not only do they know you're online, they know what you buy, they know what you read, they know what you watch, they know everything about you. Um, and it, they're aggregating what they know into a permanent public record. That's your record. It can be used against you, not only to market things to you that you may not want or to crowd your inbox with with unwanted things or your Google ads with things you don't want. But, you know, who knows what people can do when they assemble this kind of information. So to keep your data private when you go online, turn to ExpressVPN. It's a way of blocking those hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data. One of those points of data is your IP address. So ExpressVPN reroutes your connection through an encrypted server and masks your IP address, gives you a random one shared by other ExpressVPN customers, and it makes it way more difficult for third parties to identify you and harvest your data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use, no matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, or smart TV. All you got to do, tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary and get three extra ones for free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary to learn more. Okay, now let's talk about overreach at a state level. But we are talking... Who boy overreach, and it goes well beyond New York State. Talk about handing Republicans an issue for 2022, just because what I'm going to tell you is happening in New York State alone does not matter. This is a nationalizable issue, and it has been made. It is part of the psychotic New York State budget that passed through a limping, damaged Andrew Cuomo, terrified that the that the anvil is going to fall on his head of his own misbehavior both sexually and in terms of killing old people and lying about it and all of that. And so he has completely surrendered in a way that he has not in the course of his uh, his governorship to the demands of the left in Albany to keep them from turning on him completely and pass this $220 billion state budget. Somebody pointed out that Florida state budget (laughs) New York has a $222 billion state budget. Florida, which is has more, is now, I think, has more pe- people than New York. I'm not sure. Uh, $93 billion state budget. So welcome to New York, 
We're so glad that you're coming so that maybe you can alleviate our tax burden because if you come, you're a lunatic to live here (laughs) with the taxes that they're raising. But anyway, what's in the budget? A $2.1 billion fund. Get this. Get this. If you can prove that you're an illegal alien, you have to prove that you're an illegal alien and that you didn't work last year because you were an illegal alien, you can get paid by the state as much as $15,600. $15,600. This is for work crews who are, you know, they're custodians, they're childcare workers, they do day labor on construction sites and all of this. And they were hit hard by the pandemic. They are in the United States illegally. Uh, they do not get benefits from the state except illegally or from the federal government except illegally. They are, if you want to call them undocumented aliens, they don't have documentation that that says that they can be here in the country. If you want to call them illegal aliens, they're here illegally. I am a dove on the illegal alien issue. I believe that we actually have too low immigration and that the economy needs people like this and that the you know, the turn against them, the violent turn against them in the Republican Party is self-defeating and, and, and we, uh, understandable culturally in many ways, but self-defeating. Nonetheless, the idea that you can get paid $15,600 because you are an undocumented person who is not here legally in the United States, get paid a direct check from the government proving that you're illegal and that you weren't employed, how they're, how they're going to do that. I don't know. All I know is that there's a $2.1 billion fund. New York State, that's there. It's now. It's in the budget. It's there. At a time when there's a humanitarian crisis on the border, a wave of illegal immigration that we haven't seen in 25 years crests over uh, Texas and Arizona and New Mexico. Uh, talk about a pull. Talk about an inducement. Um, by the way, but this it isn't just New York. Um, New York is is by far the biggest, but in California, there's a seventy five. There was a seventy five million dollar uh, similar uh, program. Um, we, right. we, well, seventy five million dollars yeah. in a state that's twice the size of New York. Yeah. At least, if you do a per capita count on what you're going to get, it ain't going to be fifteen thousand six hundred dollars. Yep, fifteen thousand six hundred dollars, everybody. I mean, this is, you want to have an issue that 435 Republicans can run on in 435 districts? Those people, those people in New York, those people, those Democrats with the hero of the pandemic, Andrew Cuomo signing the bill, those people are paying illegal aliens directly out of the state treasury. And they're going to do it in our state, and they're going to do it federally, and they are going to do it. This is the worst political move in my, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying this now, I haven't really considered this, but I mean, I cannot think of a more deranged political move in my lifetime. And it that. is an inducement. I mean, the the average per capita income in some of the Central and uh, Central American countries that these immigrants are coming from is 
one or $2,000 a year. So $15,000 is a lot of money. And even if we're just talking about the people who've already come here and have been working and, and uh, you know, the bleeding heart liberals want to give money to while overlooking the needs of uh, American citizens, it's still the stories that will be told about the pot of gold that's available if you come here illegally are not untrue anymore if the if this money is being handed out. And again, like it, as a as a political issue, it's it's I agree with you, John. It's it's crazy that they're doing this. Um, but as a for the Biden administration, they shouldn't want this either because they have a border crisis that they are not handling. A lot of the people coming over are uh, minors, and they still haven't figured out a policy for how to deal with all these kids. Um, what are they going to? How are they going to pay for that? And that the, the questions about the border as a as a matter of federal policy are not being answered. Meanwhile, states are handing out checks. I mean, it, it is it's not really good for the Democratic Party right now when they when it when this issue comes up either at the state level or the federal level. So it, it baffles me they're doing this it's also deadly for new york i mean this is this is at a time when people john as you say are fleeing because of the rising taxes this is what taxes are going to i mean this is you know it's madness and but by the way you know like there's so many checks going to so many people at this point to talk about a universal basic income is almost you know has almost been like overtaken. Like what, you know, there's, there's, you know, you can yeah, already you'll get of, less. You'll get less. Absolutely. You'll get less from the universal yes. basic income than you might get just hoping for a recession. Right. Maybe if there's a recession, you can get $15,000 instead of 10 or whatever it is that the universal basic income is going to be. Look, Andrew Cuomo, for all his uh, mania and thuggery and all of that, Andrew Cuomo was represented a break against lunatic liberal policies uh, in New York State, of which there were many, many have been proposed, many have been suggested, and all of that. And he has always represented a break because he understood that uh, that there is a limit to how much you can push the tax base of a state in declining odor, right? People don't want to come here that much anymore. The ordinary way you incentivize businesses and things to come to your state is to cut Taxes, cut business taxes, cut payroll tax, cut regulations in order to make this a more desirable place. And where it's less desirable are places that people don't want to live if they haven't given a choice. You want to see what it's like in January in Utica, New York, or near Buffalo? It's cold. It's snowy. There aren't a lot of resources. There's not a lot of like you know cultural activities and stuff like that. It's not pleasant. It's like Arctic. And so, you know, you, you can go south, you can go to Arizona, it's warm. Okay, fine. It's really hot in the summer, but whatever. You got you double time incentives to figure out ways to want to get things done. And uh, Cuomo understood that that wasn't really possible to create a tax cutting atmosphere in a state where there was no stomach among the Democrat constituent groups for that. But he was always looking for gimmicks, he was always looking for ways to do public-private partnerships or or get casinos in the Catskills or, you know, uh, Abe's, uh, Abe's uh, family, historic family <laughs> business, uh, Grossinger's, uh, um, the Concord, these places turn, turned, into, turned into casinos, uh, the Borscht Belt turned into casinos and all of that. And in the last three or four months or two months or something like that, everything has gone up in smoke for him. And his ability to say, you shut up, sit down, and you listen to me or I will kill your family or whatever the hell it was that he said that scared people to death 
has been eliminated and he is suing for peace with every liberal leftist group. What do you want? Put it in the budget. I will sign it. Do whatever. And you know what they want? $15,600 for people who are here in the country illegally. First of all, direct cash benefits from the government is not that popular. I mean, I, I know here it's wildly popular at the federal level. But uh, so what if you're can, like can I introduce, um, a can legal I immigrant in New York State? Do you get $15,600? I mean, this is very similar. Well, the theme of the show has become wild, insane democratic overreach. Um, so I'll introduce this one. Um, it just came across my transom. Marin County, California. Ever heard about this? Marin County, California. I've heard of it. Now <laughs> introducing a UBI. Well, they're introducing a UBI, a universal basic income, a thousand dollars a month starting in May for exclusively for mothers of color. This is unconstitutional. Yeah, that, that's this illegal. Is, that's... Is, like, facially illegal. Yeah. Like you don't even have to be a really all that well-informed person to know that this violates the equal protection clause in the 14th amendment. Um, Marin County is very rich and white, I will say. So there's probably like five mothers of color. People who are going to be recipients of this. Um, All of this is for guilt-ridden progressive white people. That's the audience for all of this. Historically, African-Americans are actually really kind of suspicious of discriminatory policy, even if they benefit from it for good reason. Uh, this is directed at uh, you know the progressive white liberal base, and it's easily nationalizable. It's, right, and it's and it's not going to survive as policy. So, what do you get out of this? It is strictly uh, uh, shooting yourself in the foot. Okay, let me give you another point here. Let's go back to New York State. What is the key element of the undocumented worker? They are in the country illegally, correct? So they they don't vote. You're handing out benefits potentially to hundreds of thousands of people who cannot vote. What the hell is that? What is rep? It's one thing to say, I'm paying off my constituents, but they're not constituents. They cannot vote. That's Meshuggah. That is, that is like elementary politics 101. Who, okay. They're giving money to people who can't help them, and they don't understand that legal immigrants let's say just for the sake of argument, Asian-American immigrants who are very numerous in New York State and who are finding themselves on a political knife's edge with the discriminatory educational policies of the city of New York and the violence that is being, you know, they are they are a political constituency that is up for grabs. They're here legally. They're going to want to hear that these illegals are getting $15,600 a month. Okay, but do you know who they are playing to? And it is a constituency that's voted. It's voted uh, pretty strongly Democratic in the last few elections. And that's the, the, the as, as Noah said, the sort of uh, guilty progressive white liberals. Because I think one thing we are seeing is that the activist class is really having an impact on that voting block. These are people who are happy to put their Black Lives Matter sign, used to be happy just to put their Black Lives Matter sign and go, look, I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm an ally. But they've been kind of galvanized, I think, in large part because of social media and, you know, all of the unrest we've seen over the last year um, to 
they they want to feel like they do something now, which is which is almost worse, right? So they put this putting the sign up is bad is bad enough. It's like kind of obnoxious virtue signaling. But when they want to do something, they do things like these suburban white ladies in Minneapolis who defunded the police, and then we're like, holy cow, crime is bad. Or they want to like give handouts to people based on race, which holy cow is illegal. So I feel like, but there's there is a method to this madness. It's not just random. I mean, I think I'm not sure if this holds true in the New York case, but there are a lot of white liberal folks um, and progressive folks who want to feel like activists. And so they want to see this kind of stuff happen. And those people were very excited and really turned out in uh, for, for Joe Biden. Um, yeah. Okay. But let me just make one final point about New York state and what Abe was saying about the tax base and people leaving and all of that. Michael Bloomberg once gave the game away at some point in 2006, 2007, when he said, we got to be careful uh, in the city. Okay, the city makes up half the population of the state, but it makes up 70 to 75% of the tax base of the state, by the way, not just the city. In New York City, 50% of the taxes that are collected that support the $99 billion city budget that is apart from the $223 billion state budget are collected from 2,000 people. 2,000 people. Hmm. And you know who those people are? They're mobile. They, they, don't, they don't have to stay. They own private planes. They, come, they can come and into New York. Houses in West Palm Beach. <laughs> and, I mean, it was said then that they would just go to Connecticut, right? Or they would go whatever. Um, pandemic hits... And uh, the indications are, and we don't really have the tax receipts yet, and we won't really know for two years, the indications are that a thousand of them have left, leaving a thousand people. Hmm. The tax receipts of New York City could decline by 15 to 30% next year or this year or whatever it is that you start gathering this sort of information in terms of people declaring themselves new residents of another place. This is no joke. Like, we are not, you are not kidding that you put bills like this out and Andrew Cuomo is raising taxes on the wealthy at a very significant clip. Like, apparently, if you make, I don't know, $2 million a year or something like that, your taxes are going to go up almost $200,000. It's a 10% aggregate after tax tax increase. Uh, no one's going to stay. I mean, I, people who have the ability to go somewhere else, and now that you know the upper upper classes have demonstrated to themselves that they don't need to be in offices together, they are not going to stay. You could talk about it. You could be talking about a meltdown, a financial meltdown of state and city assets, the likes of which we have never seen, and it can happen really, 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 really fast. And because Andrew Cuomo couldn't keep his hands off the woman that he brought in to help fix his iPhone in his office, whom he had groomed for months and then threatened a month after he closed the door and started groping her because he can't keep his hands off her, the entire state of New York is going to collapse and disappear. So that's really great. He did a really fantastic job. and He should be really proud of himself. You know who else should be proud of herself? Randy Weingarten. Randy Weingarten, the head of the American Federation of Teachers, the uh, one of the two main teachers unions in the United States, along with the National Education Administration, the uh, the union that 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 govern that that uh, uh, handles New York City in particular, 
uh, Randy Weingarten uh, doesn't like the fact that um, some uh, of her co-religionists among American uh, Jewry uh, don't like uh, what's going on with the unions. Uh, and uh, she gave an interview to the Jerusalem Post, uh, or to excuse me, to the to the uh, Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Um, in which she uh, unloaded on uh, on fellow Jews who think that teachers should be in schools. And here is what she said, quote, American Jews are now part of the ownership class. What I hear when I hear that question is that those who are in the ownership class now want to take that ladder of opportunity away from those who do not have it. Am I saying that everything we do is right? No. Are people in Los Angeles fearful? Yes. Um, so thanks, Joseph Goebbels. (laughs) You know what? Thanks, Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And I don't give a damn if she is married to a rabbi named Sharon Weinbaum, who herself has a lot to apologize for, for her disgusting views of Israel. But we'll put that to one side. Randy Weingarten literally there is proffering a cliche about Jewish power that is so disgusting that she should be driven from power and she should be shamed and go bury herself in, you know, go bury her head uh, as, as, as the Yiddish curse has it. Can I, can I just add a, a, a lesser point, but also kind of appalling in, and, and what she said is the idea that, telling uh, that that parents who want their kids to be able to be in a classroom with an educator, which we know is the ideal setting for them, are somehow pulling the ladder of opportunity away because they want to return to school. How is that reducing opportunity to want your kids to get an education? So on so many levels, that statement made no sense unless you're a, you know, unless you're a teacher's union supporter and then it made perfect sense. I also I also need to call out something that she said because it is a lie. It's a disgusting lie, and she knows it. She is a bullshitter, and she is bullshitting. And here's what she said in an answer to a question. A lot of private schools, including a lot of Jewish day schools, have been open for in-person instruction for a large part of the pandemic without massive outbreaks fairly successfully. What factors made that possible that weren't able to translate on a larger scale? And here's what she answered. They did a lot of testing. A lot of the private schools got money from the Paycheck Protection Program very early so they could actually put mitigation factors in and testing in, and that's what they did. And frankly, they were really, really careful about it. My friends whose kids are in Jewish private schools talked to me at length about how much money they had to increase tuition and how the schools got money from PPP. Other private schools got money from PPP as well. And frankly, the testing piece is a really important component. Now, number one, bullshit. Tuition testing money didn't go up. And in fact, at the school that my kids go to, yes, they got PPP money because PPP money was there to prevent layoffs. That's why PPP existed. It was a form of private unemployment insurance to make sure that these institutions that might have to lay people off didn't have to. And you know what they did? You know what they did with this money? They walked around. The people who run these schools walked around with tape measures. And my my kids' day school, Heschel, they walked around with tape measures. They went everywhere to see what six foot distance could be. They 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 put they did this, they did that. They spent they they don't sleep at night. They figured out how many people could be in the building. And it turns out 
that they everybody couldn't be in the building. So the high school and the middle school are there three days a week or two days a week. And the lower school, the little little kids are there five days a week because you can't teach them otherwise, right? They didn't increase tuition. They didn't do this. You know what they did? They worked really, 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 really hard because they are committed to education and they don't believe that kids should stay out of school, unlike Randy Weingarten. And they weren't saved because they got a lot of money because, in fact, tuition didn't go up. If you want to know the truth, tuition did not go up. This is a lie. She's a disgusting disgusting public figure. She is lying about the schools that did things right because her people did nothing. She did nothing and her people have done nothing. Her people have done nothing except obstruct, suck (laughs) off the public teat and pretend to be teachers while they are sitting eating bonbons on their bed. And if you don't like my saying it, too bad because it's enough already. It's April you know, uh, Christine's kids haven't been in a classroom all year. Mine have. You know why? Because I pay through the nose to send my kids to private school, and they care. And they care, and it's not as though the per, per, you know, per pupil spending in New York City, for example, isn't $22,000 a year or something like that. So my rant is over. This Randy Weingarten is a contemptible, contemptible person. And but her, she's, and- she just said it in a really, um, you know, contemptible way. But this is just, you know, really basic intersectionality. This is the kind of stuff that you hear from activists, for, you've heard directly from activists, for example, who organized the Women's March. The perception that Jews are, what she said, are a part of the ownership class. Which is straight is up. Predicated, predicated on stereotypes. And- Intersectionality forces you to think in stereotypes and, and internalize those stereotypes and then sort of apply those stereotypes because that's really enlightened. That's what those people live. That's what this philosophy teaches you to understand how these, these people endure this kind of prejudice. So you have to internalize that prejudice and then sort of project that prejudice out as like a form of enlightenment. And that's all this is. It's just naked stereotyping. Um, you can argue whether it's anti-Semitic or not. It's debatable. But it's most certainly predicated on stereotyping, gross generalizations of the sort that people used to be ashamed to say out loud and in public. But of a, of, among a particular segment on the left, it's considered the height of sophistication to endorse these kind of gross generalizations. And John, yeah, but these gross – yeah, go ahead. Well, Amen, John, you, you mentioned uh, Goebbels and, and, and the protocols – um, but what you left out here also is Marx. Um, this this talk of the ownership class, that rhetoric is straight out of Marx. I mean, you know, you you, you know, people attack the right for saying be, beware socialism's coming or this one's a Marxist or a commie or whatever. But that really is that is that is just simply you know in 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 terms of you know like uh, uh, Marxist text and and thinking this idea of the ownership class that wants to put obstacles in front of others. Um, Jewish or not, but but actually also in Marx, Jewish um, is 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 straight up Marxism. And I I like to hope that this that 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 tactic she's taking and that that I see among um, uh, the local teachers union here in D.C. and and in other cities that have very activist and powerful unions, um, they may they're starting to make it about race too, not just not just ownership classes, but if you want schools reopened, you're a Karen or which I've been called, you're you're racist because you're putting Black lives at risk, Um, and the unions have embraced that too as a weapon. But that to me reeks of desperation because it's 
A, it's not true. A lot of parents of many different backgrounds want their kids back in school. And also, we now have so much evidence that it's actually kids who are already at risk in, in D.C., that, that is largely African-American or minority population. They're the ones suffering the most. So the union is doing something. I agree, John. It's despicable how they're how they're talking about kids' needs when all they really want are teacher privileges. It's it's appalling. Uh, she concluded the interview. The interviewer said to her, you described yourself as deeply religious in a 2010 interview. How do you think about manifesting Jewish values and the work that you do? And here's, and here's how Randy Weingarten answered this question. What I mean by being deeply religious is that faith is really important to me. Gratitude is really important to me. The sense of doing for others as you would want others to do for you, that the sense of repairing the world, justice, justice, thou shalt pursue, that to whom much is given, much is required, and that sense of how we make the world a better place, a more just place, a place that is kinder, a gentler, a place where we teach our children from generation to generation we will do better. That's what being deep religious means to me. Education is an opportunity agent. So you know what this ownership class that she is condemning in language proper for the protocols of the elders of Zion, you know what they're for? They're for children being in school, being educated. Because it is unjust and unkind to them. Because you are being unjust when you say to me that somehow because I send my kids to a school, two schools that are trying to educate them by moving heaven and earth to educate them, that, um, that, that effort that's not duplicable by her uh, because educate. We think education is an opportunity agent. She thinks education is an opportunity to take money from poor people and give it to middle class people and upper middle class people who are teachers while they sit at home. That's the opportunity. It's theft. It's theft. And the notion that people who are arguing that you need to go back into schools are doing so out of a position of privilege is so astonishing that this is where I keep thinking that the hand is being overplayed. I'm not thinking that people are going to follow my rage and be in this position in relation to it. But you cannot have a population of people making demand after demand after demand that other everybody else in the country is trying to get on with it, move past this, and live normally and go back to normal. And what they're trying to do is extort money from everybody else. Is that going to stand? The interesting question. Okay. I've, uh, my rant is over. Thanks for listening. I'm a little, I'm a little heated right now. I don't I just like can't believe you outranted me on schools. I'm impressed. <laughs> Wait, before we go, I want to take I don't like anti-Semitism. I don't like anti-Semitism. And I and what I hate more than anything is Jewish anti-Semitism, where somebody garbs herself in a talit and a and 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 tefillin and puts a kippah on and says, All you Jews suck. Which is what she just did in that interview. Okay, I'm gonna take the temperature down a minute for, for listeners so you can leave on a happy note because I'm happy, because I'm gonna pat myself on the back. Because I'm right. 
um, yesterday on the podcast predicted that the Biden administration had established for itself a set of conditions in negotiations with the Iran deal, which would compel it to blink. It needs to get something close to a deal in place before the Iran election, before Iran presidential elections, because the hardliners, the scary hardliners are coming. There are hardliners and we need to give the moderates something to campaign on. And the easiest thing for them to do is to reduce sanctions, because if Iran's first gesture would have to be de-enriching uranium, reduce enriching uranium, mothballing centrifuges, the sort of stuff that takes a little bit of work. It's easy enough to just flick a switch on the sanctions, right? And wrote that up for the blog, said they would blink, and less than 12 hours later, they blinked. Sanctions relief is coming. Sanctions that, quote, do not comport with the 2015 pact, whatever that means. But the bottom line is Iran gets... Iran gets some goodies right out the gate, and this is not the last time that's going to happen. That's some happy note. <laughs> well, it's good yeah. for me. It's, yeah. it's, it's good a for dark you. dark humor. <laughs> yeah. It's excellent for you. Congratulations, Noah. Thank you. You're, you're, you're welcome. You're welcome. Randy Weingarten will be very excited to hear that sure. Iran will have a nuclear uh, weapon because maybe it can be used against the ownership class. <laughs> For Abe, Christine, and Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>